Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Where Peter Is Live. Catching us right here at our usual time slot now, Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. I am Rachel Lemire, the host of this little show we have. I am production editor for wherepeteris.com, and I am joined today by a few others. Let's see. We have Adam Rasmussen, contributor Mike Lewis, our fearless leader, and Melinda Ripnick. We have something. Our Melinda. Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> And we're all here today to talk about a lot of things. <laughs> we have a lot going on. There's a lot happening in the church. Um, but we're going to start with a prayer, which Mike is going to lead us in today. Yeah, so um, as many of you know, Pope Francis is about to embark on a trip to Iraq. It's a very historic trip. Um, obviously, a lot of tensions going on over there. Uh, the Iraqi Christians have undergone a great deal of persecution, and um, a lot of them have been forced to leave. Uh, this is the Pope's first trip since uh, the beginning of the pandemic. So, and some people are saying that it it may be a little premature, but um, he entrusted the trip to to the Blessed Mother today at uh, Saint Mary Major, and so um, why don't we pray? For his trip in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen lord our god grant pope francis health and safety to carry out successfully this eagerly awaited visit bless his effort to promote dialogue enhance fraternal reconciliation build confidence consolidate peace values and human dignity especially for iraqis who have been through painful events that affected their lives Lord, our creator, enlighten our hearts with your light to recognize goodness and peace and to realize them. Mother Mary, we entrust Pope Francis's visit to your maternal care so that the Lord may grant us the peace or grant them the peace of living in a complete national communion and cooperate fraternally to build a better future for their country and their citizens. Amen. 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 In the, the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sorry, the prayer was written actually by the Iraqi Christians, so I was transferring the, the first person into, into third person. Okay. So. We actually featured a reflection this morning from a Chaldean Catholic who spoke very eloquently about the meaningfulness of that trip. So I think we'll talk more about um, Pope Francis' historic trip later in this episode. But today, as we promoted this afternoon, um, we're talking about topics really related to human dignity and fraternity in a variety of different ways. Um, we're going to start, though, with a really important and impactful article that I hope everyone watching this has read. Um, it's been widely shared from our site, um, and it's Melinda's piece called Willing the Good. It's a very profound reflection on her experience of really trauma and then forgiveness and what she saw um, and learned um, about human dignity and about the image of God in every person. So Melinda, I would like you to share with us a little bit um, about the reactions that your piece got <laughs> and maybe um, a little bit of what you've reflected on since that piece has been kind of out in the world and how you felt about those reactions. Yeah, well, First, I just want to say thank you to those who are watching and who read the piece and have um, either privately messaged me or um, responded 
on Twitter, Facebook, um, very supportive uh, comments that just meant so much. Um, it wasn't really an easy piece to write. There's a lot of discussion and healing and that kind of thing in the piece. Um, but even when you find different um, ways to heal, and even when you even go these avenues of kind of a willful uh, forgiveness, there's still the trauma involved. Um, and so I was kind of, you know, reminded the last couple of weeks that even these great sources of healing don't, you know, um, take away that trauma. And so for for anybody who reads these kinds of um, stories that talk about some of the beauty, and I'll say that we're beauty, even though it was an ugly situation, the beauty that we find in forgiveness and healing. Um, for those who, who have read that and read these stories, um, I want you to know, like, first and foremost, your trauma is very validated and you don't have to feel um, you don't have to feel the beauty or the words of inspiration that you read, because I did get a lot of messages from those who had very traumatic um, circumstances and they I didn't want them to feel like somehow what we're saying is is, is that that isn't that isn't valid. We all have our own journeys. Right. So for anybody who hasn't read the piece, basically, um, in, in it, I talk about an attack that um, happened to me 15 years ago um, and in which I was kidnapped from my apartment and then assaulted um, over the course of several hours. And it was a br brutal assault. Um, it was a sexual assault as well. Um, and there was a point even in the assault where I kind of... Um, face death, I really thought I was going to die. And I don't want to, I want to keep this like as low trigger as possible, but the article discusses that point. Um, and when you go through that, those things, right? There's so many lessons you can learn. There's so many things you learn, even in the ugliest of circumstances. Um, and so I talked specifically about what I learned about the dignity of the person who was attacking me and how to find that dignity. Um, because specifically, I wrote the article in response to these very triggering feelings that I um, encountered as I was watching uh, the recent federal opening up and and uh, executing fed federal executions of, I think, what was it like? Was it 13 no? people? 13 people, right. Mm -hmm. I'm following some of those stories and just um, how needless those executions were and what was motivating those who were advocating for these these executions. And very often you find that the people advocating for them do so under some sort of like quest for justice for the victims. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and while I will say victims are, were not a monolith, um, we all have different approaches. Um, I think the story I felt like a strong need that, that the story of a victim who doesn't seek that route needed to be heard as well. Um, so, so yeah, so I've, we have gotten lots of messages since then. Um, some of them are hard to read, uh, but I appreciate them all. Um, but I want to speak to some of those who messaged me about how can we learn to forgive this way, right? And I wish... I wish so badly that I could tell you how and more and that I can manufacture manufacture a grace or, you know, a 12 step program or something. But I can't. All I can do is to like offer my witness of how 
through grace and prayer, I was able to kind of get to, to that point. Um, but I also want to say that for those 15 years, I learned that forgiveness is like love in a lot of ways, in the sense of we know the definition of love is willing the good of the others, right? It's not Valentine's Day hearts and all of this. The mm-hmm. church is very clear on this, that it's about an act of willing the good. And so it's just interesting because that's what I need. My article was willing the good, right? It's just interesting because as I was forgiving, right, over the course of years, that's really what the steps look like, a greater willing, willing, willing the good. Um, It's not feelings. Um, Again, even as I was typing the article, I had very psychosomatic symptoms. I was I was shaking at times, like going through the article. And um, even now I feel a little shaky, so I apologize. But those are effects of trauma. The feelings of the trauma that you experience, they aren't mutually exclusive towards your capacity to forgive. So if you're feeling feelings of you know um, anger or trauma or sadness, all of that, that's not that's not necessarily mutually exclusive to your ability to forgive someone, if that makes sense. Um, And so for me, like love, right? We know that like we're in Lent right now. So we meditate as Christ is on the cross and the, and the, and the suffering he endured that the 14 stations that we go through, all of that is, is love, but it's a love that costs. And it's a love that certainly doesn't feel like the good feelings of love. And so the same is true for forgiveness. You don't have to feel like, you know, you want to be hanging out with the person who wounded you. You don't have to feel that way. But it is it is a concrete decision to will the good of the other. And so I say this kind of jokingly, but if you're at a stage where you have a wound and you know that it needs to be forgiven and maybe the person's not even sorry, right? Maybe not. Start with maybe not wanting that person to get like hit by a semi truck. Like <laughs> Start there. Um, you know, my story sounds more heroic than I wanted. People were calling me courageous and all kinds of beautiful things. And they were, and I appreciated the warmth they were sending me through those words. But my story sounds courageous, but it doesn't, that's not what forgiveness has looked like. Because the reality is, is that there's also things like personality. And there's also grace. And there's also people have unique gifts and they have unique flaws, right? So somebody may be more prone to jealousy or to bitterness or to a lack of forgiveness, right, than other people. And so you can't hold yourself uh, culpable to an extent comparatively to other people, right? Your journey of forgiveness is your own. So, and, and that's the same thing with grace, right? We didn't merit our personal traits to an extent, we work on virtues, but we didn't merit, oh, I have a disposition that's more, you know, and we don't merit grace either. So to those that have reached out and told me about their struggles of forgiveness, I would say, don't compare yourself directly to my story. If it inspires you because you know that forgiveness is great, is is, is um, achievable, then I'm so happy. But start with where you are um, and start with not wanting someone to get hit by a tri- semi. And then, and then maybe, maybe eventually, you know, you'll you'll want like good things for this person. And one note, too, that I want to add when when we talk about willing the good of the other is it accountability is also willing the good of the other. So when I say, don't wish people to get hit by semis, right? Don't, 
But at the same time, like sometimes what's good for the person is also what holds them accountable. Because I received a lot of, I received stories too of people who had wounds that never, um, the perpetrator or um, the person who had wronged them had never seen accountability for those wounds. And I had those wounds in my life too. And so I, I understand that. Like my perpetrator is in prison right now. There's a degree of accountability that has enabled me to forgive as well. But what I would say is that when you're willing the good of the person, don't feel like that even that will has to be based off of feelings too. Like you're not willing for them to always have sunshine and roses and da -da. you can will for real accountability for people knowing that that accountability is good for you. And it's also good for the person in which you're trying to forgive. Um, but there is also two very cognitive and active, willful, spiritual exercises you can do to kind of get yourself, you know, chipping away at what it looks like to will the good. And so that was kind of the surprising thing for me. And this whole journey has just been how much forgiveness is like love and that definition of, of willing the good. So, yeah. so I'll, I'm, I'm going to take you off the <laughs> off the big screen so that um, I appreciate that. all eyes have been on you. Um, and I, I just want to say, first of all, it was, I mean, it was a powerful and beautiful testimony that you wrote. And, uh, you know, as your editor, um, or as the editor, when you handed it over to me, <laughs> it's funny, because I, I, and I feel bad, because it's like, I told you when I, after I read it, I needed to sit with it for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you you thought I <laughs> didn't like it or something, but it was like, it's just... So <laughs> I was, I was, I was, I mean, I, I'm, I was, first of all, I was, I was honored that you would share that with me, but also with the intention of um, sharing your story with others for, you know, for the purpose of, of teaching about forgiveness and for the purpose of upholding our, you know, our Catholic teaching that has shifted away from that retributive justice model towards restorative justice um it's funny though because after it was published because i don't know how many people actually read it um before before i hit before we hit publish um so i know i'm sorry like i know when i sent it to adam um he texted me back and was just sort of like wow i wasn't you know um I wasn't ready for that I yeah didn't realize what it was about from the title and um and our friend Austin Ivory, um, you know, he, he messaged me and I, I shared with you some of his comments, but like one of the things that I wrote back to him was, um, you know, I felt really intimidated by it as an editor. And he said, well, of course you should be. She handed, she handed you her soul. <laughs> and, and I mean, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just sort of like, this is, you know, this is sort of the, 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 and so I wanted to make sure that you're, you know, and this is, I guess, sort of part of the writing and editing process and you're, and people are, are seeing kind of the inside window, but um, like what you put on the page, I, you know, I felt this responsibility that you were going to put your best foot forward because you had a really powerful message. And when we came up with the title, it was like, I noticed that throughout willing the good, you willed the good for the other person. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that 
in the discussions while I was editing it, which kind of surprised me because typically stories of forgiveness follow that, follow the, the, the tradition, I guess the traditional path would be initially you want that revenge, right? You, you, uh -huh. or people will want that revenge. They'll want to get back at that person. And my own journeys of forgiveness have kind of been, um, more often than I'd like have started that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, I guess, you know, th thank God for your faith that, that you knew right from the first moment that, that we're called to forgive even though, and, and it, when it was put to test, it was, I guess it was a grace, but that, but yeah, like you said, it's every, everybody's got a different, a, is coming from a different angle and a different story and has their own, handles trauma differently, um, handles different kinds of hurt differently, um, whether or not the person who causes the pain is held accountable is obviously an issue for a lot of people. And, and in my own life, it's like I, you know, the hardest I've ever had at forgiving someone was somebody who basically got off scot-free with what they had done, actually benefited after what, you know, except in the eyes of God, of course, for what they, for what they did to me. Um, but yeah, I just, I just want to express my gratitude to you and for sharing your story. And, um, you know, I was, I was deeply moved. And one of the, one of the things that I, one of the comments on, and I forget who, who made that comment on maybe on Twitter was that intellectually they understood the idea of why, um, we should choose restorative justice instead of retributive justice and um but yours actually but your your article actually moved to believe it with his heart so i thought that 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 was very powerful yeah well i definitely appreciate um austin for saying that um because that's a very scene i was very drained for like a week after writing it um but um but yeah, at the end of the day, what began me wanting to write this was, again, hearing about these executions and feeling for, um, of course, we feel for the victim, but feeling for the perpetrator too, having kind of really in a very real way seen the dignity and and the man who, who um, attacked me, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of people in the Pope Francis um, debate of can for Pope Francis change the it changed the death penalty discussion. A lot of people want to take the avenue of saying, um, well, it's because we can detain criminals, right? And that's true. That's one of the reasons in which he listed that it was no longer in inadmissible because we have means to detain, right? But for me, from the beginning, it was his line about human dignity that stood up, stood out to me, was this, um, this, this, he speaks of the deepened awareness of human dignity. And so, yeah, very early on in that journey, I felt very strongly that, like, the sense that I could ra rationalize God allowing me to suffer was the fact that he so greatly and unconditionally um, loved my um, attacker as well, right? And so because he loved my attacker, he wasn't going to infringe upon his free will because the free will is unconditional. And likewise, with the human dignity, human dignity is based on, you know, the love of God and not um things that we can do it's unconditional so 
Yeah. So I, for me, that's the message that I wanted to kind of give a perspective to when we're talking about the death penalty is not just, oh, well, we can also detain them more, but it's also, can we challenge ourselves to increase the awareness of the dignity of even those who commit horrendous crimes? So, And I think, I think that's what your piece really put a human face to was the dignity of the person. I mean, Mike just recapped what feedback someone gave on your piece about how they felt in their heart. But to me, it was a gradual revelation kind of over a period of time that God guided you in a deepening understanding of the dignity of this man and how, you know, you spoke of how he could be in heaven. You, you had like thoughts of where he might be in heaven in relation to you. And just that deepening awareness that God loves this man profoundly, even though no matter what he has done um, and, that is a, a very challenging vision of love as willing the good of the other. It's not something we can just talk about or say. It's something we actually do need to see in action and see people witness to. And I think that's what made your piece so powerful for so many people is that it was that that witness that we can read someone's story and know that that sort of love is real. Mm -hmm. um, and it really does illustrate then what Pope Francis teaches about the dignity of the human person and the treatment that every person is then due um, under justice mm -hmm. <laughs> and even the mercy that we should extend to them in terms of not executing, like not tit for tat in our treatment mm -hmm. of criminals. Um, so I know that it's been kind of a development over several years that's been discussed really broadly throughout um, just the Catholic world is this initial change to the catechism regarding the death penalty several years ago. And then most recently, the Fratelli Tutti really definitively saying that the death penalty is not an admissible form of justice. Um, Adam, could you really um, kind of recap that for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, something a lot of people don't realize and maybe don't appreciate is that the teaching, the Catholic Church's teaching on the death penalty has changed twice, in fact. And, you know, someone who really delved into the whole history of it would maybe say, oh, no, it's changed, you know, whatever. But we're talking about the modern period. And, you know, my point of view is almost that John Paul II's change in the mid-90s was actually arguably more important. And it certainly paved the way for what Pope Francis taught. So basically, to recap it, I have a whole article about this from way back whenever. But... The first version of the Catechism of the Catholic Church explicitly permits the death penalty uh, in cases of grave or extreme necessity, uh, just as a matter of justice. And that, you know, would be the position that, you know, many people still hold to, right? If you listen to defenders of the death penalty, they'll just say, well, it's justice, it's tit for tat, you know? Um, and and it, that's kind of as far as they take the issue, right? And then, the catechism was being revised because it was always a kind of a preliminary version. It was a published, it was official. It wasn't like a secret, you know, working document or something, but it was always going to be revised in the process of being put into Latin for its definitive typical edition, uh, typical meaning kind of like prototype for translations. And what happened was John Paul II in 1995 published Evangelium Vitae, the gospel of life. And in that papal encyclical, he basically lays out and explicates and develops Catholic doctrine as the Pope in an official uh, magisterial capacity 
on abortion, euthanasia, and the death penalty. And each of those issues is distinct, and each of those issues has to be discussed in its own right. Um, but essentially what he says is we have a consistent ethic of life. Sometimes it's called the seamless garment. And so that means we're sort of pro-life on, on these three issues and really more, but those are sort of the main three of that document. Like people talk about war, nuclear weapons, healthcare, et cetera. And so he basically says we're against these things. And then John Paul II, uh, the, the, the big change really was, it was kind of a twofold change. Uh, if you if you compare the exact wording is one, they got rid of the language of in, in cases of extreme necessity and said it's acceptable only as a last resort. Basically when no other options are possible. And that actually makes a lot of theological sense because it kind of dovetails nicely with principles of uh, self-defense. If you look at you know, the Catholic doctrine of self-defense, you can't arguably intend to kill someone. Um, at least this has kind of become, I would say the mainstream position within Catholic moral theology. You can only intend to defend yourself. And so the lethal force would just be a, uh, a foreseen but unintended double effect of your attempt to defend yourself. And so by saying it's only acceptable as a last resort, it's kind of bringing the death penalty into that mold, saying like, look, if it's the only way to contain the unjust aggressor, okay, if it's really the only way. John Paul II said that would still be acceptable, but that's really narrowing it from saying cases of extreme necessity or, or um, because that's more like you could argue that anyone who's like murdered multiple people or, or he's murdered someone and you think he might murder another person, like you could always kind of argue that that's a case of like grave necessity, right? But John Paul II clearly ruled that out because he changed it to say last resort. And then secondarily, and this is the part people always quote, he said that such cases in the modern world uh, are practically non-existent or maybe don't exist at all. So he actually said, look, here's the theory. And then he said, and as a matter of fact, that's not the case, okay, in the modern world because we can put people in prison and there's no real chance of them escaping, right? It's virtually unheard of. There's no real danger in imprisoning someone, okay? They can't hurt, uh, they can't hurt more people, okay? So as, that's why I said it was twofold. One, to say it's last resort, and then two, to say, by the way, that doesn't actually happen, guys, okay? And so people kind of tend to want to um, either just reject it outright, or they, they say like, well, okay, we, we believe you, Pope, but you're wrong about saying those cases are super rare. They're actually really common, you know? Now that that doesn't really make sense in my opinion because I don't understand how those cases are common. And then Francis takes it to another level. So I feel like he kind of paid John Paul II kind of paved the way. What Francis does is he really rewrites it. Um, and I think it's obvious what he's trying to do. He's trying to close the loophole. Basically, people had been using the theoretical acceptability of the death penalty as an excuse for justifying it in particular actual circumstances, even though the Pope and then Benedict after him as well, as well as the USCCB, they had continued to call for the global abolition of the death penalty in explicit unequivocal terms. Uh, but people kind of set that aside, people who didn't like it, which was a lot of Catholics, I think, have rejected this teaching especially in the United States of America. Most countries have outlawed the death penalty, but we haven't. And then what Francis does is he kind of 
closes the loophole by making a stronger argument, um, which is where you get into justice versus mercy, I think, and law versus gospel. And in, in my own writings, trying to kind of defend this, as well as reading remarks of people who continue to promote the death penalty, Catholics and other Christians, is a lot of people don't seem to understand the difference between law and gospel, um, which disturbs me as a theologian. Because if you think Jesus came to give us new laws to follow, something is seriously, seriously wrong with your understanding of our religion. Um, but, but in this particular instance, he basically says the death penalty is per se contrary to the gospel. Now, he doesn't say it was intrinsically evil. He doesn't say it's intrinsically unjust to execute someone. Okay. Now, his critics were like, oh, he's trying to say it's intrinsically evil, and that contradicts the past, you know? Well, he didn't actually say it was intrinsically evil. He said it was intrinsically against the gospel. So it contradicts the love of Christ. It contradicts the mercy to which we're called of turn the other cheek. I mean, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, that's a pretty explicit argument against retributive violence, right? I mean, he just flat out says, don't do it, okay? And 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 Paul repeats that as well in the New Testament. So um, it's, it's a question of following on our beliefs in mercy and love. And, you know, some people try to, oh, well, but, you know, that's a Christian thing. That should be separate from the court system. I mean, I can respect that argument, but I can't take it very seriously. It's disingenuous. And the reason it's, or it's uninformed. Everyone in Christian societies such as ours, and I use that sort of loosely, meaning we have a lot of Christians here. We have a lot of Christian influence. I know that we have the First Amendment. But we all bring our moral beliefs and values, and Christians very explicitly so, and kind of unapologetically, which I agree with, frankly. I'm also pretty unapologetic about bringing my Christian values to my political thinking. Um, we all do that. So unless we want to outlaw all references to the Bible in any legal discussion whatsoever, any political discussion whatsoever, which is, some people want to do that, but it's kind of ridiculous. And if you look at the history of politics, that's never been true. You can't outlaw it on just the death penalty. You know, we're allowed to bring our Christian beliefs of the Sermon on the Mount when we talk about the death penalty, um, just as we do with abortion or euthanasia, et cetera. And so I think really that idea that it's contrary to the gospel was very much um, kind of at the heart of what Pope Francis was saying and where he sort of took the teaching to the next level to close that loophole. He also talks about kind of our evolving understanding of human dignity. So there's kind of a twofold argument there to also just say, and this maybe gets into the idea of restorative justice, to also say that as a society and as a church, we've come to have um, a deeper, fuller appreciation of the dignity of human beings made in the image of God. And that also gives us reason um, to shy away from using the death penalty um, when there are other means at stake. I see that as sort of just following along the lines that JP2 had already laid out, basically, uh, of saying just as a matter of justice, human dignity, society, we don't need to be executing people anymore. But then also the other thing is the this is per se against the teachings of Jesus to do this, which it is. <laughs> Matthew chapter five, read it. I do remember, um, you know, in the early 2000s hearing 
the teaching of John Paul II on the death penalty articulated in that way, where, you know, to prevent harm, the risk of further harm to society, like that should be kind of a primary goal to prevent the risk of harm to society. We don't actually need to execute people. We can just put them in jail for the rest of their lives. And then that is a way that we can then protect society. Like that was always my conservative Catholic understanding of how murderers really ought to be treated. Mm -hmm. Um, That seems to have developed significantly and in a very challenging way in Fratelli Tutti, especially in how Francis articulates that. Like, he doesn't he explicitly talk about how we can't kind of be so keen on protecting ourselves that we are willing to execute? Isn't right. that that's the substance of kind of the argument is yeah, the gospel well, demands this of us? The great thing about Fratelli Tutti, I didn't even get into into that yet, but the great <laughs> thing about that, it's from the la- last chapter um, of Fratelli Tutti, is he again directly connects it to war. And so there's that sort of logic to it that fits with what JP2 had written in Evangelium Vitae. But he also, what he does is he goes through a number of Bible quotes, especially the ones that, that some people try to use to support the death penalty and kind of shows where that is a misinterpretation. JP2 does that as well in Evangelium Vitae, by the way. People saying, well, by man shall his man blood be shed, quoting Genesis like we've never heard of it before. Um, I mean, John Paul II literally writes about that in that section of the encyclical, and that's 1995. That was 26 years ago. Um, so again, these 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 arguments are not new, and and they've already been shown to be wrong. But but Francis really digs deep into it in like six seven paragraphs, as well as bringing some quotes from the tradition uh, to sort of to say like, look, when we do something new in Catholicism, um, and this is like Vatican II, we don't just like like make it up, like, like make it up out of nowhere. Right. Like, Oh, we're just going to invent some new teaching today. Cause we just feel like it. Cause I'm the Pope. I can say whatever I want. It's not like that. Um, and so what was, so what you do um, is you go back to the scriptures, to the fathers of the church, to the doctors of the church, to previous magisterial statements. Um, and you develop that side of the tradition that has been a bit undernourished or underfed to show that there have always been multiple opinions and viewpoints throughout 2000 years of Christian history. And yes, some people support the death penalty, right? You know, it's easy to quote them. Okay, fine. Uh, But some other people were critical of the death penalty. And so Francis brings that out in Fratelli Tutti. So he's, I didn't really need to write a new piece about this because he's, he's upped it even since 2000. uh, I think it was 2018, maybe. And Mike, I know that you wrote about that the Francis's magisterium on the death penalty being not open to disagreement at this point. Um, <laughs> there are there is a lot of dissent and outright criticism of this new teaching or this development in teaching um, that we've seen and heard. I didn't know if you wanted to speak more to that. Um, yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that and maybe Adam kind of hinted towards it, but a lot of this dissent, I guess, goes back to the old principles that justified the death penalty. Um, Instead of restorative justice, there was this sense of retributive justice. Now, and I know that that it's a Thomistic principle and it goes way back. Um, It seems to me though, because especially because since John Paul II, we've really looked at the death penalty as a matter of um, like last resort defense of society. And even if you read the definition 
uh, or the the teaching on the death penalty from from the Catechism of Trent, it appeals to the protection of life, the protection of society, right? Um, but other you know other theologians that have been quoted by popes have been quoted by um, you know that have been taught in seminaries and are certainly highly revered by by traditionalists um, and those who oppose Pope Francis's teaching. Um, appeal to this notion of retributive justice, which is that someone who commits a horrible crime um, deserves their just punishment. Like justice says that this person must die because they murder somebody. Now, as, as Adam was talking, he was talking about this uh, th theoretical uh, system whereby um, John Paul II said, you know, it, people were saying, he was saying, well, in theory, this is possible. Um, and I lost my train of thought, but he was saying in theory, this is pot, <laughs> but people, were, people were taking that loophole and driving a truck through it. Um, yeah. And, exactly. and it's anyway, it's a whole, that's a whole thing. But um, yeah. So here we are live and I just might have had a long day. Um <laughs> <laughs> um, but just, retributive I guess, justice. One other That's, aspect. That was exactly the okay. <laughs> so, Go ahead. Okay, so, we, so I mean, the thing is, about. but like retribution, we think of vengeance, right? And the Christian is not mm -hmm. vengeance. Like, I don't even understand right. why. I mean, maybe this is just my modern brain thinking, or just having been formed by John Paul II era, being a John Paul II era Catholic. Like the idea that somebody deserves death because they've committed a horrible crime. Okay, this is what I was going to say. It's that in theory, okay, maybe that's a possibility. But if we look at the entire history of the death penalty, has it ever been carried out with fairness and consistency? Mm. <laughs> no. I mean, we look at, you know, two people commit, you know, somebody kills 17 people in Texas you know, they're a serial killer and they work out a deal where they get life imprisonment, whereas somebody who's like an accessory to a murder in Texas gets the death penalty. And or we see people who are rich uh, getting getting off easy or we see, you know, nobility back in 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 the olden days. Um, we see certain types of murder being legal throughout our history or certain types of of terrible crimes uh we think about like the the horrible uh treatment that that slave owners did in the u.s in the south but i mean this kind of thing is um i mean we look at our history and and just human justice is never applied fairly or evenly it's just even with the best of intentions it's not the system doesn't allow perfect human justice and therefore yeah okay maybe in theory a punishment can be a punishment might be just but if it's not being applied evenly if it's not being applied justly then how can we really say that a system whereby execution is legal but isn't applied evenly is is just so i mean um, the other thing that we were going to talk about was in terms of restorative justice. Now we don't, you know, we don't know 
I mean, what's going to happen to everybody that's in prison right now. But one of the, the pieces I wrote in the first months of Where Peter Is, uh, I titled it The Death Penalty and the Mystery of Mercy. And it's the story of my own great-grandfather who, when he was a teenager, a young teenager, um, he and his two brothers and a, a black um, farmhand, hired hand down in Georgia, uh, were hired by his father, so my great-great-grandfather, to murder uh, a neighbor that he didn't get along with, that they'd had a family feud. Um, you know, it was 1904 in South Georgia. Um, and so the, um, you know, the, the, the crime took place and, uh, and wound up that the man that they were, that they were trying to kill wasn't killed and, and two of his children were shot and killed instead. And one of, and my great grandfather was one of the shooters. Um, he was identified by one of the kids before he died. And, um, so they, uh, sentenced um the uh the farmhand his name was was alf moore and my great great grandfather to death on a tuesday in, in 1906 and they were both hanged now alf moore he was back he wasn't one of the shooters and he was actually the reason why my great great grandfather was convicted um, they say historically it was the first time in Georgia history that they know of that a white man was hanged on a death man's on a, on a black man's testimony, um, and yet his um, admission of his involvement uh, got him hanged as well. And um, so that was Tuesday, and then my grandfather and or my great my great grandfather and his other teenage brother, the other shooter, um, were, were scheduled to hang that Friday, but their sentence was commuted to life imprisonment Thursday night. So he was spared. I think he was 16 years old at the time of the trial. And then when he was about 25 years old, um, he, because of good behavior and because of you know, it was clear from everybody, uh, from all accounts, that it was really the manipulation of his father uh, that led the three boys to, and you know, to to do the crime. Um, he was given a pardon, and so he was a young man. He was he was released. He had been a model prisoner. Um, he went on to get married. Um, you know, had a had a small farm. They had seven children, including my grandmother. Um, all of those, all, all seven of them got married and, and had children. And I grew up going to Georgia to these huge family reunions and to think, you know, little kids running around everywhere, um, to think if that sentence hadn't been commuted or if he hadn't been released from prison, none of these people would be here, um, you know, and, and a lot of them, I mean, we've got professors, we've got, my brother is a priest, you know, <laughs> talk about vocations, um, doctors, teachers, school principals, engineers, um, people in all, you know, in all different kinds of lines of work um, and, and good people with families. And, um, but it's only because he was given that second chance. And it's only because he, after he was rehabilitated, after he was um, 
Now, nothing can bring back the the two kids who died. I mean, there there's just it's it's a tragedy. It's a wound on our you know who knows if they had lived whether their families today would be having you know huge family reunions or or would be doing great things. Um. So, but you can't. I mean, you need to sort of take stock of the situation you're given. Where do I go from here? Where do we go from here as a society? And so I think, I mean, when I when I read the full history, and 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 when it was passed down of that story, it it kind of struck me like, wait a minute, if if this lawyer hadn't fought for my great grandfather and his brother's lives, they would have died, and I never even would, you know, generations ago, I, generations would not exist. Um, so yeah, so I mean it. It's one of those things where mercy, I mean, yeah, people get out of prison and they do horrible things again. Um, not every story has a happy ending. Not every crime or every injustice can be rectified. But I think we really need, I, I think as a society and as a church, we need to have that heart that's oriented towards mercy. And even if somebody has mental issues or obsessions or predilections that won't allow them to be released from prison, we still need to respect their dignity. And as Pope Francis said, reintegrate them on the outside or if necessary on the inside. Let's not treat prisoners like cattle or like animals. Let's, um, you know, if they, if they behave well, if they're trying hard, Let's not let maybe give them that extra, extra thick blanket or that TV or the access to the video game or, or, or whatever it is. Um, give people something to live for. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what he's what he's saying. I think that oh, sorry, <laughs> I think that connects really like to what Melinda's story is also. I mean, the the real big challenge of the gospel is that we don't have guarantees of an outcome, but we hold out the possibility that forgiveness and mercy will allow God's grace to work, to yield those beautiful stories and to yield that grace acting in someone's life where they can be redeemed. Melinda's perpetrator's story isn't over. We don't know what the outcome is going to be, um, but we have to sort of trust that God is working in this situation. And if our forgiveness can help that grace enter into the situation and if are allowing someone to live and and have the opportunity for conversion for the rest of their lives if we can allow that to happen then who knows you know what the outcome can be and that seems like a very that's a very radical and very uncomfortable um like lesson for the world you know um i remember when this spate of federal federal executions was happening you know the justification for it from the Department of Justice, even under a Catholic attorney general, was really retributive justice. Like, we are going to select criminals who committed the worst crimes, even if that wasn't really the case. We are going to emphasize the, the horrible nature of the crimes they committed and in order to justify the speed with which we are executing them. Um, that really was the rationale given for it. And in our society, it's really hard to grasp that, you know, people can do terrible things, but we still need to allow that space. And sometimes that involves taking a risk 
um, to a certain extent that they might not choose to seek God and might not choose to allow God's grace to work in their lives, but we still need to allow the possibility. And I think that 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 risk of the gospel is something that um, is really omnipresent in Francis's teaching and even in his witness. So I think we intended to turn, I think, from the um, discussion of the death penalty to more broadly to Pope Francis and his really historic trip that's happening right now. Um, I, we think he's on an airplane or he should be shortly. Maybe they're finishing packing um, the bags. Um, but it really is a his an historic and a risky trip. It's the middle of a pandemic and he's entering a war zone or a, a, a place where there have recently been um, major attacks, rocket attacks, um, even attacks in locations where he is scheduled to travel um, in the next few days. But it's a very significant trip and he is dedicated and committed to taking that apostolic journey. It does remind me of his namesake, St. Francis of Assisi, who insisted on meeting with the Sultan during crusades, crossing battle lines. Um, but Adam, I know that you uh, have been reading a little bit more about the trip than perhaps I have, but I know that um, the uh, America Media has a wonderful podcast you guys should check out. It is about half an hour long. It's Inside the Vatican with Colleen Dully, and they have just some wonderful interviews about the trip that will give more background on the significance. Um, but Adam, if you wanted to jump in here and share a little bit about the plans or yeah, you know, some of the major events know, of what's happening. I don't happening. know very much about it, to be perfectly honest, but I kind of was interested in reading about it because first of all, what I didn't know till I read about it was probably a lot of people don't know this, I assume, is he's the third Pope to want to visit Iraq. And it got called off both with both of the previous two. So this desire mm -hmm. goes back to about 20 years, okay? Mm -hmm. That might explain, I think that does explain, in fact, based on the Vatican quotes that were being put out to defend him about why are you going when the pandemic is still going on in Iraq, was they didn't want to postpone it, or, which could amount to just canceling it, um, for the third pope in a row over a period of 20 years. Um, and so it's really supposed to be like a message of um, it's, it's like a really symbolic trip, you know, to go, the idea of going all the way back to JP2 is, you know, to say like, look, Iraq is, is the biblical land, you know, this is going back to the homeland, they want to go to Ur, where Abraham is from, originally in the book of Genesis, uh, so it's this idea of Abraham, you know, the father of three, of three religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, the three monotheistic religions, and then to sort of be a, a message of support for the church there, because you know Christians have been in that region for as long as Christianity has existed, more or less. It's, we're not entirely sure when it gets started. Uh, and and of course, I think you mentioned this at the beginning, Rachel, when you were uh, introducing things. The, the church has suffered a lot there. Uh, obviously, war uh, for decades now, and so it would be a really strong message for the Pope to go there. But then the other thing that I wanted to mention, which is also part of the trip is he's going to go meet with a Muslim leader there. And this seems like it's a direct follow-up to his meeting, uh, which was in 2019, two years ago, with the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, uh, where they signed this human fraternity document. And in fact, I was reading about how they wanted to sign a document too, because he's uh, in for the new trip, they wanted to sign a document as well, because he's meeting uh, with Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, 
So he's an important Shiite cleric. Uh, cleric is a misnomer, by the way, when you're talking about Islam, but journalists say it anyway. Um, scholar, uh, they don't have like bishops and stuff in Islam. And and so then it would it would sort of complement the visit and the document with the with the Sunni, okay, from two years ago. So you have the two major branches of Islam, and it and it's all the themes of human fraternity, values, human dignity, uh, etc. Probably don't have time to get into all the details of that, but they're not going to be signing it because the thing is that the Grand Ayatollah there, um, he's also this like revered dignitary, kind of like a pope. I mean, it, that's a really rough analogy, but. And he's also kind of in poor health. He's 90 years old. The New York Times calls him reclusive. And so all they were able to sort of do was carefully negotiate a, a kind of ritualistic greeting, exchange of gifts. The Ayatollah will stand. He'll walk to the door, which he does not do because you go to him. Um, and so it's this whole formal thing. And they will speak together. And perhaps there's some sort of joint statement, something like that. But they're not going to be signing a document together. So we will, even though I think Francis had hoped for that. Um, so we won't be getting a second kind of human fraternity document, but he'll definitely be giving him, and I say him, I mean the Grand Ayatollah, he'll definitely be giving him a copy of Fratelli Tutti, which really is an encyclical born from, in part, the human fraternity document, although it was reshaped in light of the pandemic. Um, and so it still has that theme, and it'll be interesting to see what sort of public statement they make afterwards. Uh, that is between the Grand Ayatollah and Pope Francis, because that could be really interesting. Um, it's so important. Um, and, and it was clear the people of the Iraqi government, government officials were being quoted saying they were very on board with this because they also want to promote dialogue and peace and fight extremism and fight terrorism, you know, and bring more stability to their country. And so for a Christian leader and a Muslim leader to come together and to make these strong statements denouncing violence in the name of God all of that sort of stuff is so important. So hopefully everything will go, you know, go well, God willing. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the aspects that I, you know, that I'm focused on, especially because we published Mark's article this morning is the plight of Iraqi Christians. Um, I mean, I think I saw the statistic where the Chaldean community, which is one of the most ancient Catholic churches in the, in the world um, has gone from 1.5 million to something like 400,000. Uh, ISIS has driven them out since the Gulf War, they've been driven out. Um, it's been it's been a devastating time for them. And I think the fact that Pope Francis, despite the pandemic, despite security concerns, uh, he's just decided to go and and to be with the people there um they have an ancient tradition they have a large population they've been uh, a persecuted population in a lot of ways uh being in a majority muslim country for century upon century is definitely uh definitely takes a toll on on i mean being a minority religion takes a toll on probably takes a toll on anybody so i think that this is a chance uh, if nothing else, to bring hope to them and and to and to be a meaningful time, uh, where they get the recognition. As you you hear, I have I have a lot of Eastern Catholic friends, and they always feel like they're the 
that they get the the second best or that they they don't quite get the attention even though they're fully in communion with us and their traditions are just as valid um that sometimes they're overlooked and i think i think that this is a great opportunity for the universal church so i commend pope francis for for this journey and i'll continue to pray for him yeah for sure i know that the um he released a video message this morning to the people of iraq before the trip and he expressed really his closeness to the people um i read that he's going to celebrate uh liturgy in the chaldean rite which is the first time that the pope has done that um as we as far as we know um so it it does seem very symbolic in terms of closeness to the chaldean christian population um amid persecution or recent persecution he's visiting some of the sites where like, genocide took place um just to really express that closeness of himself to the people that it you're right he he's insisting on going he's going he's he's decided to go he's going to go and we just we need to pray for his safety on this journey um and they are taking all the precautions that I think that they possibly could to go during this COVID pandemic. They've ensured that everyone in his entourage is vaccinated um, against COVID and um, they're limiting the numbers of people who can gather at some of these masses he is celebrating. But I think, you know, whenever the Pope comes to your country, it's, it's a big deal and <laughs> you know, he's there. Um, and so just knowing that I think he's present with the people of Iraq is, is really the bulk of the message also right now. Well, and actually one fun fact. Now, it's not technically the Chaldean Rite, but he may be the second pope in history to actually say the Mass in the language that Jesus spoke. Because the Chaldean language is the closest living language we have to Aramaic. And actually, I don't know what language Francis is going to, he might do it in Italian or Spanish, like I don't know what his command on on the on on the Chaldean liturgical languages um, is probably better than my old church Slavonic, but um, <laughs> but uh, Saint Peter, you know what I we don't know. I mean, we don't know necessarily what language he celebrated the liturgy in, but that was Jesus's tongue. I don't know if they were doing it in Greek or or if it was. Um, it could very well have been the vernacular and. So he could be the second pope in history. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. So there's, um, we also wanted to kind of wrap it up with new posts and new information on the site today. So we posted my article um, this afternoon, which I'm not sure how many waves it's been making since we got on this live stream, um, but about the Veritatis Splendor community that's being planned for Texas in the Diocese of Tyler. Um, that was announced over the weekend with a lot of um, fanfare, it seemed, in certain corners of the Catholic media world. Um, There's really friendly National Catholic Register report about it that initially kind of rolled out this announcement. You saw the bucolic field of, in Texas with the nice nice lake with the sun, the sun shining on it. Um, but then I, I'm not sure if it was on Sunday or Saturday, there was a video that um, came across my feed, thanks to Melinda. <laughs> um, the video that Ver the Veritas Splendor group or co-founders put out um, to really advertise the initiative. And, you know, initially I'd kind of just been like, okay, whatever, I'm not going <laughs> to pay attention to this. Um, but watching the video, it was very, 
dramatically produced um, piece of um, advertising, let's say, call it marketing, that was just really um, appealing to a lot of undercurrents in conservative or reactionary Catholic media that I knew was going to appeal to a certain group of people. Um, so I felt the need to really write this article that was going to expose um, a lot of the what they were actually saying about what they intended for the community. So that's what that um, my lengthy post is really a deep dive into this video and into some of the print marketing materials that Veritata Splendor has put together so far. Um, I think it's really interesting the connection that Bishop Strickland has to this group um, because he is emphasizing that it is a lay initiative or a lay led initiative that he's welcoming to his diocese while at the same time all of their materials are very prominently featuring his image and his words he opens the video um with a very kind of jarring introduction or like i'm gonna tell it to you straight i like to speak plainly where i come from there are wolves and the worst wolves are the ones in sheep's clothing. So it's it's a very intense marketing plan and perspective. And what they're trying to build is a somewhat insular community of um, Catholics and followers of Jesus Christ. It's not actually explicitly Catholic um, who will live in this new area in Texas that they have acquired and orient their lives in community around some educational institutes, which are kind of unclear in the purpose and the scope of those institutes. Um, but I really felt that it was important to look at their intentions, their stated intentions at this point in time. So I would be, encourage people to go yeah. read the article. <laughs> it's very long. Can Magic I just over say, here holding his breath? Yes. <laughs> can I just say that last week on our live, <laughs> It was so funny because I told you guys the story about like some of the backlash I had received at the at, from these prisoners, and I was noticing last week that they like called me a wolf in sheep's clothing, and so that was not lost on me when I was watching the dear bishop <laughs> warn them against people like myself who are wolves and sheep. So I was just laughing at that. It is on the live. Go check it out. I was definitely you know, one of his wolves. I don't know. Well, and, and here's one of the things, like this seems to be the culmination, yet another culmination, I yeah, guess I we could it. say, because it keeps culminating, it keeps getting more extreme. But this is, you know, David Lafferty wrote, one of his first pieces that he wrote for us was called The Popeless Church of Tradition. Like they claim they're upholding this tradition, and yet the Catholic tradition, integral to our tradition is unity. And there were no, basically, they were bashing every bishop out there for not doing their job with the, I mean, effectively, with the exception of Bishop Strickland. Bishop Strickland, anybody who watches the, the American church and the American bishops knows that for people accused the, the American bishops of being right wing or being too conservative as a body, right? Strickland is the outlier of the outliers. I mean, he's speaking at anti-vaccination conferences. He's signing open letters by Vigano. He's openly advocating for uh, political candidates. He's, he's making these bold statements and they're calling him 
they're calling themselves orthodox but essential to catholic orthodoxy is unity with the pope being part of the ecclesial structure and it's like they're trying they they don't like their bishops they want to get away from what catholics believe are the shepherds of our local churches so that they can gather into this place that the local bishop seems to be assuring them is independent of him bringing in an oratory of priests who are not subject to transfer and who would live there permanently, whatever that, how, whatever that's going to amount to. (laughs) Um, They won't answer any questions about what the, um, well, they don't mention Pope Francis in their materials at all. Well, that was, that was really what set me into actually writing about it was reading their fundraising document, which lays out kind of, the most extreme um, case against the bishops and situates all of society's current failures, a society adrift and in decay on the failures of bishops to teach the faithful clearly. They speak of the breakdown of the Catholic church and the need to erect an alternative. They call it an alternative, which will preserve, protect and defend the faith. So it's envisioning the role of this group as fulfilling the task of the church as a whole, that's carrying on the apostolic faith is how they describe themselves because the bishops have failed because the rest of the church, I guess, has failed. That's, that's how it's articulated in the documents. Now, if that's not what they intended to say, then they needed someone with a much clearer and more incisive way of putting together that argument. But it really sounded like saying the quiet part out loud. Like it sounded like the result of people who have are so used to thinking and talking in this way, assuming that they're kind of in the company of others who believe the same things about the state of the church today. And then saying, oh, here, we're gonna build a group and you need to come and we all think the same things about the institutional church and we are gonna do it our way in this friendly diocese. That's that's how it reads to me. now. Well- and, and I mean, the thing is, it's like it, it it's every single red flag. I mean, that's it's a lot of the... flaring red flags. And, and and is it a lack of self-awareness? Is it brazenness? Is it I mean, I, I was asking Melinda what she thought, and she thinks that they'll have a big enough audience that will support this unironically. Well, because because to us, it sounds like we've been raising the red flag for, well, you, Mike, for years, for sure, with where Peter is. Um, but for them, honestly, even reading Rachel's article today, right, like reading it from the, their perspective and with their eyes, right, um, it sounded appealing even in her article. So I think we're taking for granted just like how much this base thinks this way. Um, and the things that they want to hear. And even when I, I was pretty um, vocal on Twitter the last couple of days about this, I had people honestly commenting, hey, that video looks convincing. Like in a sense of they were glad they had gotten out of the the, the very um, extreme traditionalist community, but still kind of having some of those influences in their mind, they were able to recognize how convincing and appealing it was. And so, I mean, yeah. So it was designed to be convincing. I mean, I don't, I don't want to overstate it, but they used propaganda techniques of flashing like a few seconds of scary footage. Like there's a wolf howling in the background. Like so many people I talked to said, make sure you get a picture of the wolf. 
There was no picture of a wolf. There was audio of a wolf howling in the background, like as Bishop Strickland was speaking. There's an image of police cars, of the United States Capitol, of a child who looks very distressed in a surgical mask, of like a digitized version of the coronavirus. Like the, it, it's calling to mind these images that cause distress. And then there is a reassurance from Bishop Strickland and from this group that we are providing a haven where you can come be a city on the hill. And to me, you know, it's one thing to kind of read blog posts and kind of like, you know, people on Twitter, remnant guys, people, you know, calling you effeminate on Twitter, whatever. Like if you have a podcast, that's fine. But to see like this, this specific call to bring families to a new place, um, we know that high trust groups with a high suspicion and fear of outsiders, like that is a very dangerous situation for vulnerable people. So really, I wanted to bring attention to what they're actually saying about their plans because of concern. So if there's not a reason to be concerned, then I would expect a transparent group to be very open and to not retreat into defensiveness and to vilifying critics. I would expect transparency and, you know, open plans for even just, we are going to practice safe environment. We are going to follow safe environment rules that you're all familiar with. You know, like there needs to be a lot of oversight and a lot of care taken when you are talking about families with children moving to a location together. There just does need to be. So how have we gotten to this point though, where people think that that is Catholic, <laughs> the universal church <laughs> in communion with the Pope. I mean, I don't, I don't, it's Adam. I don't know. <laughs> you think? Yeah, I mean, how many times have we seen this before? That's what I just want to keep, keep thinking is like how many groups have already tried this? This is such an old story and you're right. It's like kind of a scandal. How is this in the Catholic church too? You know, it's so ridiculous. You have basically trying to create a church within a church, really transparent, you know, like blatantly like, well, the Catholic church failed. So Pope Francis failed. So we're just going to create a new Catholic church within the Catholic church in East Texas, you know, and it's, it's just like cult, cult, cult. Well, and, and you know? here's the thing. It's like, you hear about these stories where it's like a nice community and it starts out with nice people and, oh, we're just happy and we're going to pick fruit together. And then the done. stuff creeps yeah. up and then, and then three years later, the, the, you know, families are escaping and 20 years later, the kids write the memoirs. But yep. like what I, what I saw in these promotional materials is that they're advertising that right off the bat. <laughs> like here, here's our, here's our exclusive uh, single-minded community. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's in your face propaganda. It's like, this don't is even have to try to hide to. it. It's yeah. so it's like people are like, oh, yes, I'm going to go buy a house there and move my family there. And we're going to be like, it's going to be like a golden age of Christ on earth. You know, and one of the things that's like, that... that's Orthodox. Show me that in Catholic theology. What you know, Rachel show me where brought you up leave the world is the rules that this Regina Chaley Academy has for like dress code and behavior and telling on one another, if they're not living a Christian enough life, like those are not in the advertising materials, but we know that they're, I mean, and that's just a homeschooling co-op. 
So imagine if they had to live with these people on the same compound full time. This is where this is where the live stream. When we go late, we get a little irreverent. But <laughs> I mean, there there are a ton of questions and a ton of more questions that need to be asked. And I don't think it's too kind of aggressive to ask those questions because they are being so forthcoming with their plans and because they are already rolling out information centers or information sessions. They're advertising in, in different places or people talking about them happening in Houston already. So it really is something that other Catholics need to be aware of, um, that I think other bishops need to be aware of, that there may be this draw from your diocese for people to move to this diocese for a specifically insular Christian community. Um, you have a responsibility to the faithful to identify <laughs> which organizations are Catholic and which ones are safe. <laughs> um, and if if there's not going to be reassurance of that for um, people, they should really be critical. You know, just because you trust an organization doesn't mean that that trust is merited. You need to really take a close look. And so I was I was hoping in writing my article, and Melinda, you said people who kind of agree with this already might find it attractive. I was really hoping that I wouldn't alienate people um, who might need that information. Like I just wanted it to kind of be a summary of here is everything in one place. If you are concerned about a family member expressing interest in this, here's what you need to know. Um, because I think, you know, there, there have been a lot of jokes and, and kind of lighthearted um, banter I've seen on Twitter about this, but to me, it's just, it's really serious. And so, you know, as much as like, as, as easy as it can be to like, kind of crack jokes about things because it's so uncomfortable at the same time. Like, I don't want anyone to be alienated by what I say. Like, I am not making fun of you. I am not like wishing you harm or ill or trying to destroy your worldview, but just please be careful and please have your eyes wide open about what the possibilities are. With this. I think the, the big danger with these things that we've seen a thousand times is they don't think they need that rules and accountability and best practices and openness and transparency. <laughs> that's for the wicked, sinful world that's full of wicked, sinful people. These are all saints and men of light who are running this. And they would never hurt a fly. And whatever rules they make are for your own best interest to help you get to heaven. And you shouldn't really question those because that shows a lack of faith and doubt. And you might be endangering your salvation. Um, that's the rhetoric that every group like this whether Catholic or Protestant or what have you, has used for decades, if not centuries. Um, and it is it is scary because if this succeeds, it has the potential to do great harm, as has happened so many times to so many people. Maybe it won't succeed. I mean, is this right now kind of a pie in the sky sort of thing? I mean, are people actually doing this, like moving their lives, buying houses? Or is this so, right now mostly a video? The, so that's the thing. The founder um, of Regina Chaley, um, Carrie Beckman, she announced in the register article that her family intends to move this summer. Um, we found out that it sounds like the the property is under contract. So I'm not sure exactly by whom or who's owning it. Um, I found it. It's like TexasLuxuryRanch.com if anyone wants to go check out the listing. Um, it's I don't know what the specific plans are for like breaking ground. I know that the fundraising efforts right now on their website are for this oratory that they're saying is going to be built first. Um, so 
I think it's all kind of in the planning stages. So to me, there's still a lot of time for them to very transparently kind of write the ship and who knows what could come of it. Um, but there's also a lot of time for things to go really south. So we've seen this happen happened so many times, like you said, Adam, and it's happened with Catholic, you know, I, I mentioned in my piece, um, communities, covenant communities that were erected during the charismatic renewal, um, those who were even ecumenical in scope, and there were some kind of really negative outcomes with those. Um, but we've seen even very extreme examples, which I don't know that are warranted at this time, but there's a lot that can go wrong with when you're retreating and, and placing yourself in opposition to the world. Um, so there is cause for concern. They're raising money. They've raised tens of thousands of dollars already. They're still far away from their $22 million goal. Um, but who knows really what's going to happen. They have, they definitely have the enthusiasm for the cause. And Regina Chaley has been very successful in expanding its own network of homeschool academies. They're in I think we said 16 dioceses and an article I read in researching for the piece said that last year, so before the pandemic started, they had had like 38% enrollment growth over like a year already. And I know that homeschooling is very popular now, even since the pandemic. I mean, we started homeschooling and never planned to before um, <laughs> during COVID. So um, I know that they have a lot of reach nationally too, where they have kind of the network to reach the people who would be most um, interested in something like that. So, um, I'm really glad you wrote that piece and I'll read the whole thing. I didn't even know it was up yet, but this yeah. sort of thing always fascinates me, uh, in a negative kind of morbid way. And it's yeah. good that you're getting the word out right away. I think so there's a resource for people to look at. Thanks. Well, we're way over our target time this episode. Um, we had a lot to try to pack into an hour, but I think, is there anything else anyone would like to add tonight? No, I think we're... Uh, just continue to um, pray for the Pope. And I, if I can get uh, Christopher Lamb or, or, or somebody who's, who's covering it, covering this papal visit, maybe we'll have a special live stream earlier yeah. next week. That'd be awesome. At minimum, I know we'll have some papal airplane comments to talk about. It always yeah. happens. <laughs> I hope that that's the most exciting thing that we have to talk about. So, all right. Well, from all of us to you, have a very blessed weekend, and we'll catch you later. Bye, everybody. Bye.